Hello, you're listening to The History of Now, a podcast run from the History Faculty of the University of Cambridge, or more precisely, from a locked down living room just north of the River Cam. This podcast is about how the past can help us to think about the present. And right now, we're running a series of episodes on issues related to the crisis triggered by the current COVID-19 <clears throat> pandemic. I'm Chris Clark, and my conversation partner today is Professor Mary Rubin, Professor of Medieval and Early Modern History at Queen Mary University of London. Mary is the author of many books, but particularly uh, pertinent to today's discussion are Charity and Community in Medieval Cambridge, which came out with Cambridge University Press in 1987, and her Gentile Tales, The Narrative Assault on Late Medieval Jews, which came out with Yale University Press in 1999. And she's just published in March this year another book which is relevant to our theme, Cities of Strangers, which came out with Cambridge University Press this year. Mary, you're a medievalist. Um, that's an era which feels very remote to many uh, participants in modernity. Do you see historical parallels between the medieval encounter with contagious disease and the current crisis? Before I'm a medievalist, Chris, I'm a historian. And then as a historian, as you know well, uh, living through this crisis has been just a constant assault and challenge on our assumptions and the way we think exactly about our relationship to the past, be it a very, you know, a far away one like my own or the one that you deal with, with, say, the 19th century. So I, I feel I'm in a sort of perpetual historical laboratory, sometimes ethnographer, sometimes uh, historian, sometimes, well, obviously just citizen. So one is asking this oneself this question all the time. And I'll start by saying that there is no way we can even imagine what it is to live in a society where 40 to 50 percent of the people around you die within a very short period. We have reached nothing like that. I can only imagine in those miserable uh, neglected prisons in Brazil or some American prisons or perhaps some of our most affected care homes, perhaps something approaching that number in a, in a community, so very many dead. So however tragic and, and disrupting and, and traumatic indeed is what we're living through now, I even as an historian who studied and read for decades about that phenomenon, the Black Death and its aftermath, I don't even think that I can quite get my head around what that means. But obviously, we try to tease it out with various types of measurements and 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 uh, interpretations. And yet, although we're not quite living through anything like that, most of us, um, the parallels are really quite, quite extraordinary. Mm. And they begin just with stuff like the personal and the familial, the issue of just existential fear, just not knowing where this is going, just the sense of, of, of one's exposure and, and, and vulnerability. Uh, and then, of course, in family, how, how far is the family? It's interesting that in, um, in uh, government publications now, they talk about household rather than family. People usually think of family as something sort of, you know, biological. Uh, and 
actually talking about households. And that's a very interesting uh, distinction, which actually one of our friends and colleagues, Naomi Tudmore, made in a book about 20 years ago, that when people in 18th century England, say in their diaries, uh, spoke about family, they actually spoke about the people who live with them, with whom they interact regularly. So all of a sudden, the shape of our lives, it's, it's those who are immediately around us. And that might actually include neighbors as well, to which our responsibility most extends, whereas both you and I are distant, you from one of your sons and I from, from my son. And uh, so so the person that sort of family-wise is very close is in fact quite distant. I can't do very much for him. So similarly, uh, we find in the in the documents of, of the Middle Ages a preoccupation with this business of responsibility, where does the responsibility for yourself, just literally keeping yourself alive, end and your responsibility for others extend? And you can find even in the writings of a sole individual, like a very famous uh, uh, French surgeon, uh, Guy de Choliac, who himself had you know, suffered for the plague for six weeks, but actually survived. In parts of his writings, he he bemoans the fact that father did not know his son and families did not recognize each other. It was each to his own. And on the other hand, is actually very practical about how communities organize themselves in order to cleanse and put in measures for better medical provision. So there's yeah. that personal, the issue of the existential angst that's very familiar, this issue of, of the boundaries of responsibility and 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 care. And then, of course, in the in the public domain, the assertion of uh, by authorities, by those who govern of a whole lot of powers to try and either deny or fix or attend to or, or, or diminish the effect in an array of confused uh, decrees very often uh, and also always as now informed that the role of doctors in, in public policy becomes very, very great. And that's the last thing is in their, in their anxiety, in their not knowing, people try everything and anything. It's not true that people just said, oh gosh, the plague comes from God, there's nothing we can do. They are trying everything from doctors to amulets to relics. And of course, they're also prone to uh, believing in conspiracy theories, just as we've seen around us. So from like Trump experimenting with a totally uh, unsuitable drug to uh, to the, the the 5G conspiracy. This is very familiar also uh, from the past as people are just um, vulnerable, not only to uh, Yersinia pestis in the past, but also to a whole array of ideas and suggestions. Yes, that's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's, it makes me think that this um, disturbing parallelism of of different kinds of knowledge of the disease that we face, you know, formal and informal knowledges, is is in a way a modern predicament because we, as 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 you know, as moderns, we think there ought to be one kind of knowledge, scientific, rational, means end oriented knowledge, and we're distressed or disturbed by the by the increasing purchase of of non formal, um, you know, conspiratorial theories, um, the, the the reaching for drugs whose whose efficacy has not been proven and other even more folkloric uh, responses. But of course, for the people of the era you've just been talking about, that plurality of knowledges is the norm. Exactly. Very well put. Yes, it is the norm. It is extremely pragmatic. 
And at the same time, of course, there are sort of cosmological, indeed astrological explanations. But nonetheless, uh, we have some really interesting sources from the south of France in 1363 when um, in the course of an attempt to uh, canonize a particular um, pious uh, uh, aristocratic a woman, a series of people were investigated or rather uh, interrogated and, and acted as witnesses in order to say uh, that that appealing to her and her relics had in fact cured them. So we're 1363. So there's survivors of the terrible second uh, um, second plague of 1361. But a lot of them also had been there in 1348, 49 because they had they were adults. So it's quite interesting to see how they describe when, they, when they're trying to describe how it is that uh, this particular uh, woman, Delphine, had cured them. They always start by saying, and during the terrible epidemic of 1361, I went to the doctors, I tried this and that. And finally, a family friend or a woman in the street suggested that I appeal to this saint. So in the course of a, what is a sort of investigation by the canon lawyers in order to establish sanctity, so that's something quite separate, these people are telling life stories, which is also quite interesting that they refer to 1348-9 as uh, prima mortalitas, the first mortality. They already are referring to two years earlier as the secunda mortalitas, which is very recent and out of which came the act of healing that they're giving witness to. But they usually on the way, they actually tell uh, of a whole array of, uh, of attempts to cure themselves uh, by appeal, as I said, to doctors, to other forms uh, of knowledge. And uh, first, even in one case, to hair of the saint before actually going to the nunnery that had her relics and actually uh, offering, uh, offering candles or wax at her tomb and thus uh, being healed. And what's also very interesting is that in the course of that, in one case, somebody will will mention absolutely uh, uh, as, as, as taken and normal the fact that they had started with uh, a Jewish doctor uh, to help uh, heal a child, and that Jewish doctor actually gave up and, and pronounced the child dead. And ultimately, it was this saint who helped uh, cure. And I mentioned that pointedly, because at the same time, those communities were also able to be quite violent against their Jewish neighbors in the course of their uh, fears of the epidemic. I want so, to come back to that. I want to come back to that. I think that's sure, a, really, sure. a really, really interesting theme. Mm. But this persistence of, of you know, pre-modern ways of thinking about, oh, I mean, I call them pre-modern, but uh, this persistence of a range of ways of thinking about uh, disease it has left its traces. I mean, I was talking with Laura Spinney about the about the great influenza pandemic of 1918, the Spanish influenza pandemic. And she made the point that the, the name we give the, that disease, influenza, actually derives from a, a, an Italian, medieval Italian treatise about the influence of the stars on epidemic disease. Mm -hmm. So these things have a long afterlife. Um, the focus is shifting right now as we, uh, you know, as we confront um, COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, whatever we're supposed to call it, from the mortalities associated with the disease, which have been a, a, obviously a big concern and, and rightly so, to the socioeconomic effects of the lockdown, this shutdown. And, you know, you can look at this, one could set this current um, pandemic in, 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 in context in two ways. You can see it as part of a history of pandemics, in which case, as you just said earlier on, the mortalities are not particularly impressive by comparison, say, with you know the the, the Yersinia pestis Black Death outbreaks, um, 
or even the Spanish flu, which killed between 2.5 and 5% of the population. We're nowhere near that now. 100 million deaths, possibly as many as that, for the Spanish flu, Spanish flu pandemic. But um, on the other hand, in terms of the economic measures now being introduced by states in order to lock down or shut down the global economy, that does uh, suggest something more unprecedented. And there's a lot of concern now about the, the longer term, shorter and longer term economic effects of this shutdown we're currently experiencing. What do we know, looking back to the to the uh, these medieval um, mortalities, what do we know about the economic effects of the Black Death? How long do you have, Chris? We know a very great deal. As long as we it know, takes. <laughs> we know a great deal, and, uh, and, and we know particularly a lot uh, for England, because the sources, particularly for the countryside, the sources are unparalleled from a manorial court records also we've been very fortunate in recent decades of a whole a whole array of fantastic studies not least those uh, emanating from the uh, Cambridge um, population um, Cambridge group for the study of population and social change which you know well but which of course has affected the way people go about their social and economic history for this period uh, across uh, the world so uh, rulers were absolutely aware of the economic cost of the mortality and the, 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 the social dislocation and the possibilities of um, obviously above all loss of revenue both to states and of course all these uh, dynasts be it the king of England or the king of France or, or the king the Iberian kings they are also great landholders and they're very very much aware of uh, of what happens to incomes when there are no people to uh, to harvest uh, to transport and ultimately to bring to market uh, the agricultural produce and their instinct to start with is to try and stabilize everything and to pretend it's not happening to pretend that the market and the whole economy has not been restructured by this mortality and to fix wages and to fix periods of uh, contracts, that is to hold the length of contracts as they were contracted uh, before the mortality, that is to fix people in their places doing the same jobs for the same pay for the mm. same period. Well, first of all, a lot of these people had died already. And those who remained uh, had a whole lot of reasons not to acquiesce and not to turn up to work as it were in the fields, although they were holders of lands, of uh, customary lands, that is lands that were held in secure tenure over generations within families, but for which they had to perform labor services. And, and, and they were not really free to, to determine various aspects of their lives. So the attempt is, and then not only in the countryside, also in towns to fix the periods of service, of servants, of workers and workshops, all people who are basically offering their labor. Mm. So, uh, and, and this doesn't work. I mean, it persists well into the 50s, these labor, various forms of labor legislation. It doesn't really work. And it's, of course, enforced also only half-heartedly. I mean, if you're going to enforce it, you have to send your justices on their rounds throughout the country. That itself is, of course, disrupted by the fact that justices die and, and people don't want to travel, etc. So we have some records about attempts to, to uh, and some, some good research on it, but uh, that was really not going to change the tide. So what we have is a society in which labor is now scarce. In the immediate uh, aftermath of the plague, uh, uh, the price of food shoots up just because of the dislocation and there just isn't enough in the right place. 
But in the longer term, actually, there are fewer people around who need the staples that arable, uh, arable agriculture produces. And therefore, uh, landowners, as well as workers, start rethinking what the best way forward is. Now, for workers, uh, they, uh, in cities, obviously, they're able to, cities and towns are able to negotiate uh, better wages. And that is absolutely clear. And with the fall, ultimately, of the price of uh, basic goods because of the fall of demand, they are, on the whole, able to buy more and consume more in the course of the later 14th and 15th centuries. And that has real implications for the economy. But let's just start with the countryside. What is absolutely clear is that over the next few decades, and remember 1348 to 1349 is not the only mortality, as I mentioned already, almost every decade, there is a serious mm. return of the plague, albeit in slightly different regional uh, formations and sometimes affecting particular groups in the population. Yeah. So it doesn't go away. It's the new normal, as it were. And so landlords who were able always to rely on sort of abundant demand for for the foodstuffs that they that they produce are now thinking about sort of um, looking to production that is less labor intensive. So if arable, working arable is, is, is very labor intensive, um, sheep farming is less or mm. cattle farming. And, is and the argument has been made, hasn't it, that, that in, in, a, in, an agra in a sort of manorial nexus, a system of manorial land holdings where labor is scarce, laborers or people, the people who work the land can do just what you described um, in the case of servants and, and laborers in towns, they can negotiate for better contracts. And that this leads to a sort of loosening of the nexus of extra legal jurisdictions that we call feudalism. Is that true? Well, I don't use the word feudalism anymore, Chris, but yes, I oh, know exactly well, what enough. you mean, <laughs> the manorial arrangement. When I was at university, we still did, but there you are, yeah, okay. When I was too. <laughs> no, seriously, you're absolutely right. Uh, and the shape that it takes is um, a movement away from these uh, customary arrangements, which include a, a, a large element of labor and services. Remember, labor isn't just working in fields. It can be cottage. It can be a whole series of services like blacksmithing, etc. But uh, and instead going into uh, more like leases, that is relationships that are set for years. And you can just imagine that uh, John Hatcher once suggested that uh, the landlords probably thought, OK, we'll do this for a few years and then it's back to normal. But it isn't. And we see increasingly, and also Philip Schofield, very interesting on this, that the periods of the leases become uh, shorter. That is, the element of fixity and coercion, as it were, declines from the point mm. of view of the worker. Now, uh, the, 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 the great argument of, of Rodney Hilton was that uh, in the fullness of time, this is all very well for a while, but it does mean that some security of tenure that, um, that was always there, even for the hardest working uh, serf, will ultimately disappear in the course of the 15th century. And there will be a time when this will matter because it would be easier to remove people from the land. But let's just return to those decades after the Black Death, as you suggested. So it's not just the move to uh, pastoral, uh, lots more pastoral dairy sort of uh, uh, agriculture, 
but it's also developing resources that maybe didn't seem worth the effort before, as it were. Mm. Uh, mining enterprises, uh, um, uh, fish ponds, uh, all sorts of uh, growing um, growing crops that, that produce, produce dyes for cloth. So it's a sort of diversification of these, dare I call them, portfolios of landowners in all sorts of directions, but of course also involvement in trade. Now, now, despite what um, you know, we are often led to believe, uh, landowners in England were never shy about participating in, in trade, and they were always involved in a whole lot of uh, enterprises that have to do with uh, you know, moving, mo well, moving indeed their own produce uh, about, and they knew about cities, and they were involved in cities. But of course, now uh, this becomes a much more uh, attractive enterprise. So uh, this is extremely, extremely interesting in terms, uh, and, and it's true for what happens in the whole of uh, Northwest Europe. If you look over to the low countries where on the whole, it's a much more urbanized society and far less land is in the hand of uh, landlords um, in, in the shape of manners indeed, far less. Um, there as well, even in the urban economy, in manufacture, you see because, if, if the economic pie shrinks, you sort of want to have something very, very special about what you produce. So we see the most extraordinary technological developments in the late 14th and into the 15th centuries, <laughs> and it's both ends of the economy. So luxury goods that you could have never dreamt of, but also a proliferation of mass-produced cheaper goods for those now workers who are mm. able to afford. And it's it's a very exciting way in which there are opportunities, but in a much, much reduced economy. And that, to my mind, is very suggestive also about the situation where we are now. Absolutely. Um, very interesting. Fascinating uh, and very thought provoking. I mean, it's it's striking for me as someone who's worked on on, you know, East, what we call what people in my part of the discipline called East Elbian Europe, the Europe to the east mm. of the River Elbe, um, Eastern Brand Brandenburg and Poland and so on. There, the argument is made um, that the loss of population, the big die-offs that happen with 17th century warfare and plague, for example, lead to an intensification of servile agriculture because there are too few workers. And there you have princes conniving with landowners to, to tie workers down to the land through various forms of serfdom. It, it gets intensified by the loss of population, not the other way around. So clearly the, this change that you describe in, in Northwestern Europe and, and Britain has in part to do with you know, demographic effects, but also uh, in part to do with, with ideological, some kind of ideological substance which is, which is there and which helps to drive change in some directions rather than in others. Well, I think it's to do with institutional uh, differences between mm -hmm. Western Europe and Central Europe in as much as, I don't know if you're thinking sort of areas we might call Austria, Hungary, Poland yeah. and so yeah. on. Yes. On the whole, despite the sort of catch up in urbanization and, in, in, and let's, let's call it proto-industrialization uh, that, they, that they definitely experienced in the 13th when Europe started going through it already in the 12th, it was never to the extent uh, that it was experienced in Western Europe and indeed and, and in Southern Europe as well. When you think how highly urbanized um, areas like Southern France and, 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 and Catalonia and Italy. So so these alternatives, what does it mean? It's something very simple that somebody can get off the land in the country and just go to a town and work. 
And indeed, cities are trying to attract people uh, in all, with all sorts of grants of sweeteners when they come into these depopulated cities. There isn't such a buoyant yeah. urban uh, milieu, definitely, yes, definitely yes. Not, in, not definitely not in Hungary, Poland. And, 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 and also, I should say that in Hungary, Poland, and to some extent England, um, the cities were always very much uh, under the control, sort of affected by royal legislation. And in Central Europe, far more than in uh, than in Western Europe. So there are these institutional uh, differences. And what's also fascinating, and here again, another uh, person, another uh, Cambridge socioeconomic person trained in Cambridge, a very uh, uh, important scholar, Jeremy Goldberg, has shown that it's not just that people, and when I say people, I mean men and women, mm. can go to towns because it's a real option. It's also the opportunities for men and women are different. That is to say, women have more opportunities in towns through their uh, centrality to textile production and indeed domestic service. So that there is probably that the sex ratio is uh, with, with too many women, as it were, in the towns after the Black Death and into the 15th century. And the opposite in the countryside, because the men are a bit sort of still sort of more wedded to the agrarian uh, um, economy in terms of what they can do and where they're wanted. So you get an extra complication to the demographics uh, story of sort of why does the population not recover as Malthusians or Neo-Malthusians would expect. And that's because people are not in the right place. We have a lot of spinsters. I mean, literally spinsters, but also a lot of women living alone or with other women in cities, and we know this from tax returns very clearly, and similarly unwed men in towns. And that interestingly exists in, a, in, in many, many parts of Western Europe, this mismatch. So you also can't get that sort of, as it were, even if it, this sort of buoyancy after, after mortality, which you would expect with earlier age of marriage and therefore higher fertility, that, that just does not work. And clearly, therefore, the population does not recover for quite a long time, but that well, doesn't. This is this is interesting because uh, by by highlighting the you know institutional <clears throat> and structural differences, which then in turn shape the consequences of a of a demographic impact like the like the Black Death and its subsequent um, waves of pestilence, um, you remind us that you know the effects of the current COVID nineteen crisis, sort of long and medium and, and even longer term, sorry, longer and, and shorter term. Are likely to be very, very different. There is going to be no pattern of, of effects, it, no single pattern of effects, but a very varied, um, a very varied array of consequences that are played out through different different social structures and cultures. Um, except Chris, except Chris, and you'll probably understand this better than me because you're a 19th century, you're a modern historian who understands about the, the workings of democracy. But I would say though that our politics allow for a level of popular influence and 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 activism and the shaping of policy to nonetheless play a much more sort of uh, uh, stimulating and vibrant role than it was possible because the political uh, the political community in the period I'm talking about is a much more limited one in terms of people who really have access to uh, political mm. power, except yeah. of course, when they get together and have uh, some sort of rebellion or uprising, which of course there were pamal in this period as well. I, I, that, absolutely, and of course, our, our political systems, our systems of political leadership, are far more responsive in good ways and in bad 
to um, to the sort of the, the waves of opinion and sentiment in in the population. I was um, wanted to come back to a point you just touched on very briefly before, but that piqued my interest um, about how people how people moralized the the uh, experience of pestilence and how they fixed blame for the arrival of disease. You spoke you said that minorities were often vulnerable during these periods of of pestilence. Indeed, indeed. And um, we've had spectacular work, because it was so appalling, on the um, burning, punishing, um, abuse of Jews in literally high hundreds of communities, mostly in German-speaking lands, which is, of course, where they were. So that's, that is why there is this large number. There's no more essential reason for that. In again, in, in areas where they were settled, which is not the whole of Europe by the time of the Black Death. England had kicked them out. France had kicked them out. So uh, so in southern France, in, in Iberia uh, and in the Holy Roman Empire and uh, somewhat in Italy. So in all of these places, though, I should say less in Italy, there is a violence against Jews, which is very interesting violence. It's 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 let's call it polite and bureaucratic violence. That is to say, it is not at all. And it's important that people should hear this. It's not the sort of, you know, the poor of the city rising against the Jews. Not at all. These are there's a whole set of uh, correspondences between cities, you know, civilized places like Strasbourg and Nuremberg and Augsburg, sort of sending letters to each other about so what's this business about the Jews? Yes, we have heard that the Jews have 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 threat have poisoned the, the wells, and indeed there's evidence from here and there, and there's a whole period of consultation. The the result of which is that a lot, literally hundreds of cities, bigger and smaller ones, uh, go for a, some form of punishment, usually with some sort of trial and uh, and um, the blaming of the Jews. And this in the face of repeated uh, letters from popes to from the Pope to bishops to say, look, the Jews are dying in this mortality as well. Don't forget that Jesus was a Jew as well. He's trying every type of argument that you can yeah. still to say enough. And occasionally you have also some dynastic rulers, the Duke of Austria, who basically says, you know, violence in the street is not good for rulers and, and it's best just to keep everybody calm. But what's interesting is, you know, the great Charles IV, as it were, the great uh, enlightened emperor, uh, pre-divides, pre allocates the properties of Jews uh, in Nuremberg, in Frankfurt, with the view that they will no longer be around by one way or other. So it's a, it's a, it's a, but but the, the link to Jews, I mean, I, I, would, I want to stay with this for a moment, uh, actually, but it, it, it is true, on the other hand, that the link to Jews is, is a contingent one, isn't it? Because when you look at, uh, it's not that the Jews are always in the frame for this kind of... Uh, no. And there are there are there are um, there's the example John Henderson spoke about this when we did a podcast about um, about pod, about Florence and and um, Vienna. He he mentioned these figures these these sort of figments of the of the imagination known as untori people who were anointed pest anointers who were suspected of smearing a pest conferring paste on the walls of churches or mm -hmm. on hosts or altars and so on. And they were often not Jews. They were people from other city states, other other Italian cities, they were foreign right. workers. Absolutely right about that. But of course, the, the, the inherent vulnerability of the position of the Jews and also yeah. the ready, you know, it's ready to hand various forms that 
preachers are spouting, etc. It's so easy to build up the case, but you're right. I mean, they should, they're, they're, in some places it was, it was uh, other people in Narbonne, terrible Narbonne, where there is a big Jewish community, uh, beggars were burnt. And in Sicily, it's the Catalans who recently, uh, you know, recent arrivals. And so, and, and you know, I was, I was just reading the other day, actually, quite by accident, um, in, in Heinrich Heine, the, the German, wonderful Dusseldorf Jewish writer, and although he converted to Christianity, in fact, in a sort of formal way, um, writer and um, poet, um, was, was happened to be living in Paris in 1832, and the major insurrection took place. But before that, there was actually an outbreak of the cholera. And in connection with that, he... He's, he recalls witnessing on the street the corpses of two men who had been uh, literally torn apart. I mean, all their, their extremities had been sort of torn at by the, by the, and they'd been killed by the crowd because they'd been found in possession of white powder, which was suspected of being a cholera spreading poison of some kind. Um, and, uh, you know, it turned out, of course, that these were just innocent passers-by, there were people who happened to be walking through the street, and this powder was actually camphor, which was widely used as a, as a, as a sort of powder against catching the cholera. So, you know, this is a very persistent habit, blaming people for, for disease. But it gets enshrined in legislation, Chris, and then it becomes a more regular part of the bureaucratic procedures of cities. So uh, by the 15th century, there are in place uh, these quarantines. Of course, everyone's talking about quarantines, uh, early examples. I, I like the particularly the example from Dubrovnik and it's uh, Liber Viridis. It's wonderful um, sort of city rule book of city city rules and regulations from mm. 1577. They require first actually um, 30 days, so we should have called it triantine, but, uh, and then they move on to 40 days of isolation because they're very keen to have commerce. They don't want to close their ports, so they have to introduce this type of uh, isolation for the sake of uh, of safety. So uh, so that gets enshrined in, in law and then continues on and on, like so much of the emergency legislation that may well continue in our books if we're not uh, uh, vigilant. Other ones are uh, keeping uh, strangers and their and their goods. Now, this is very, very interesting because it becomes clear that while the first explanation, um, besides the explanation that's astrological, which you cited and so on, is this belief that the plague travels through the air, a miasma, a bad air. So all these attempts at fumigation, of cleaning the streets because uh, corpses and excrement emit bad air, uh, all of that, that is the way cities acted in order to avert uh, the return of the of the plague. By the 15th century, and this is particularly evident from some very interesting research on Valencia, where we have um, a continuous set of records, there's much more attention to this issue of contagion. And contagion not just through people, but through things, through corn, through goods, through foods that are brought into the city from outside. And this is, um, I mean, so, so that, and, and this may well be something that people thought from first principles, because they thought, oh, this probably moves with corn. But the truth is that all the extraordinary research we're doing now about the Eurasian context, well, not I'm not doing, I'm, I'm merely a beneficiary of it, but it's being done by 
by scholars now in this global history of the Black Death led by the quite inimitable uh, Monica Green uh, shows that indeed food supplies were absolutely crucial in the movement that is corn, would have come particularly in the movement from where it was born in the 13th century that is somewhere in Kyrgyzstan or sort of in the in the in the in the, in the horde in Central Asia both eastwards to China and westwards uh, towards the Middle East and Europe and that it's always it's often associated with the movement of corn because that's where the various rodents uh, who are the flea bearing uh, rodents uh, live. So so there's a way in which sort of intuition and observation come together to create legislations, both about dangerous people, that is to say, strangers. And of course, later in the 15th century, the new arrivals in Europe who are um, the so-called, uh, um, well, Zigeuners, Gitan, uh, Gypsies, uh, but various types of groups, but also an understanding that things are dangerous, although they did not obviously know the bacterial uh, reality behind it. Yeah, and of course, we're back in a world of dangerous things today. I mean, people washing their shopping when they get home or when it's delivered. Um, in, in I've heard of water. someone who irons his newspaper. Really? <laughs> well, whatever floats you both. But um, I wanted to come back now to something else that you, you commented before. You said how difficult it is to imagine a world in which, you know, uh, half the people have died. Um, what what kind of mark that leaves on, on the generations that follow, on the generation that experiences it. Um, is there any evidence of, of changes, for example, in the attitude to death? Yes. Um... Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. And in so many interesting ways. And of course, here I've learned a great deal from from um, uh, Paul Binsky, who's an art historian uh, in Cambridge, who a long time ago wrote about death before it has become as popular as it is now. And uh, who observed uh, following other art historians that there is some sort of change in the forms of religious art, for example, in the period with the greater uh, preoccupation with um, uh, the rotting body, the decaying and vulnerable body in the way it's depicted, but also in the way uh, that commemorative uh, funerary microarchitecture, you know, sort of tombs and cathedrals and so mm. on, depict this particular type of, 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 of quite disturbing, I, I always find it quite disturbing, this sort of tomb where has, which has both uh, the, the, the serene body of the dead uh, bishop, say, in his vestments, but under it also uh, the, the imagined cadaver with uh, all sorts of nasty creatures coming out of the eye sockets and so on. I don't, people should probably just look this up and, 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 and see it uh, visually rather than through my attempt to describe Describe it, but it's very true that um, I think just like now, uh, people who are absolutely not morbid are thinking much more about death, about wills. A friend of mine, who's a solicitor, said endless codicils and and requests from her, from her clients to just refine, just rethink. But in the longer term, it's just something that you can't ignore. And I think it's really important for us because we think we're going to live forever. Um, that um, it, it just makes you think it doesn't mean a particularly morbid fascination, but it's just spending more time reflecting on the death we want to have, on preparing. And indeed, there's a, a, a new book has just come out about the literatures developed in, in 14th, later 14th and 15th century London 
about death, about how to die well, about how death comes to everyone, but to everyone in a different way, the danse macabre, as it were, that wherever you are, death can just be round the corner, so you ought to prepare yourself. So you can accept that as a, an exhortation to a particular Christian type of preparation through penance and almsgiving and whatnot, but you can just think of it in a in a totally just secular or even atheist sort of context of um, the ethics of reflection on, on the end of life and what it means to others, not only to ourselves. So I think that there is uh, more of that, but I mean, definitely you can see well, there's another very interesting uh, issue, which is the proliferation of arrangements for praying for the dead. There are so yeah. many dead now to pray for. And how do you arrange it, in, arrange it in some sort of reliable and sensible way through yeah. bills, through new foundations? Well, that's fascinating. I'm coming to the end, coming to the end of our time. And I'm just thinking about new foundations. You wrote some time back. Um, a celebrated book on uh, the title was the charity and community in medieval Cambridge and one of the institutions that crops up in your research and writing is um, one of the Cambridge colleges the College of Corpus Christi which was founded shortly after in fact the the first uh, couple of waves of the Black Death in England is there a connection between the foundation of this college and that experience of pestilence direct connection Chris so it's very very interesting because I'm sure everyone listens to this knows knows the colleges of Cambridge and Oxford to some extent and knows their names and through their names knows their founders that's a very very tall assumption sorry that's a very large assumption well it's you know bishops and kings (laughs) king's college queen's college uh you know so I think I think it's a these are global institutions of global renown I think uh so uh and, and they know that on the whole, these are founded by very great personages and with a lot of money to endow with and with that vision and might, one might say the sort of arrogance of just creating a statement uh, like this, a sort of great new institution of learning named after them. But um, the Corpus Christi College in Cambridge is the only college that was founded by, you know, common people, people Mm. of the city, albeit the elite of Cambridge, the Burgess elite, the sort of uh, um, uh, uh, the great movers and shakers, uh, merchants and landowners, but uh, perfectly ordinary folk. And it it worked like this. So on before the Black Death, there were, as in all cities, uh, fraternity sort of religious clubs uh, that um, where people met others like them of their same sort of social economic situation. And they got together to celebrate feast days, to celebrate and particularly to ensure that there will be a proper, a proper funeral and annual commemoration after their death in style. Uh, and so um, St. Mary's uh, was the great, the, such long-standing um, fraternity in Cambridge. And more recently, the uh, Corpus Christi uh, Guild that was founded in order to, and that's founded literally during the Black Death. And it's founded um, around one of the very great um, devotions of the later Middle Ages, which is to the Corpus Christi, that is the body of Christ as imagined in during the mass of the transubstantiated body. But members of St. Mary's fraternity were all, were all but dead. And uh, so the coming together, so these two elite institutions, elite fraternities combined, 
with common purpose to take all their property and more and to create an institution that will forever commemorate themselves and members past, well, members past and present of these of these bodies. And what better than an academic college of which there were quite a few around already from you know, Peterhouse and Clare and Pembroke. And uh, so, so they saw these institutions, which are sort of fairly new. The first ones were only founded in the late 13th century, but they seem to be effective. They live forever because there are new, new fellows and new masters and, and these are professionals at prayer. And so, Although they did not endow a great chapel for the college, the college was indeed known as St. Bennett's College because it used St. Bennett's, which every, I suppose on St. Bennett Street nowadays, still there, that church was used as the chapel. But at least the founders and the most important was um, a mover and shaker called Henry Tangmere um, endowed this college with properties, urban properties, lands, rents, whatnot, in perpetuity, and expected that the college will provide commemoration that's laid down very, very clearly forever and ever. And anyway, it still does. It still does. The college still does. And Henry Tangmere also thought this would be a good place to place his own son. Uh, and his own son was uh, after his death to be cared by by the college. So it's a sort of quite interesting way in which um, uh, the emergency, as it were, the need for emergency commemoration concentrated the minds of people to think outside the box and to say, hey, why shouldn't a group of us actually endow a college, although we're not a bishop or or, or a royal or um, or an aristocrat. And uh, and indeed, they need, obviously, diplomatically, it was useful to have a great, um, a great uh, aristocrat, the Duke of Lancaster, Henry Duke of Lancaster, to um, appeal to the crown for a license. But on the whole, they were really doing their own thing in this so, new world. So in a sense, the, an the answer to the catastrophe that they'd experienced was, in a way, prayer. I mean, that was to be at the centre of this new institution. Is that right? It's it's something that Christians always do for their dead. But the the mere the sort of the sheer overwhelming nature of these duties of commemoration was such that and and also everything about the world was so passing that what seemed safest in a, in, a, in, a, in the city of Cambridge seemed to be this type of college thing that will not go away, <laughs> will always stay. And they were right. That's so interesting because it takes us back to our, our opening theme, which is this this relationship between the medieval and the modern. You know, we, the, the, in, in, a, in some ways, I know you, you said you're, you're really first a historian and only, and, and, and only, you know, in a secondary sense, a medievalist, but there's a sense in which um, the medieval and the modern exist in a kind of binary opposition to each other, a, a, large, a false binary opposition, but in which the, the medieval focus, uh, the, the era of the Middle Ages features as a kind of era still enchanted, um, deeply immersed in superstition and various forms of irrational belief, uh, as opposed to modernity, in which we're supposedly disenchanted, means-end-oriented, rational actors. Of course, it's a completely false opposition and one reminder of that is is the is the you know um, persistence of the um, of the idea of prayer I mean I'm thinking now of a, of a statement which appeared which was just made I think yesterday um, in America we need more prayer not less and that stems from I think possibly the most profane personality ever to ever to occupy the White House 
uh, President Donald Trump. Um, and we heard the same from one of the CEOs that he lined up to sort of, you know, frontline um, the sort of private enterprise response to the current epidemic, a, a man who is a sort of pillow manufacturing tycoon who um, declared that, you know, America's uh, the, the COVID-19 was um, America's punishment for, for its godlessness and that the key was to get back into the Bible, get back into the good book. So, you know, these the, 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 the continuities and parallels between the, the, the Middle Ages and today are perhaps um, stronger and more persistent than we might think. But um, I wanted to close really with just by asking one final question. Do, do you think that our world is going to be different after this from what it was? I think it will be different, but I also think it's totally in our hands and we can't be complacent and we have to act in whatever institution our voice can be heard uh, to make that happen and not to go back to just, you know, taking those flights at a drop of a hat or endorsing arrangements that we don't reflect on thoroughly. It will take a lot of really engaged uh, citizenship. But Chris, also to what you said about the moderns, I mean, well, Bruno Latour, we have never been modern or mm. perhaps we have never been pre-modern because above all, we are human. And everything we've just discussed now is so deeply familiar because it's about the same sort of human struggles and sentiments, albeit in very, very different conditions. And isn't that really what history is about? Absolutely. And I think one of the fascinating things about the coronavirus experience has been the way in which it's dissolved some of the periodizing um, boundaries that, that structure the way we think about history. And I mean, there are there are still a, a very few people who can remember the Spanish flu epidemic. One of them is Kane Tanaka, who's 117 yes. years old in, in Japan, um, but there's a, just a handful of them. And so there's a way in which these experiences of epidemic crisis evoke cycles which are larger than single lifetimes and remind us of, you know, of, of features of our experience which are common to humans. Um, so, Mary, uh, at this, I think that's a perfect note on which to close. And Mary Rubin, thank you so much for joining us in this fascinating conversation about the historical dimensions of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Thank you. Thank you, Chris.